It's John. It's John. Gluten is not your problem. Conversations with culinary chameleon, modern day renaissance man, and my friend Walter Schmidt. Join us for insights, musings, and rants on food culture, life, the universe, and more. Please enjoy. So, welcome to Gluten is Not Your Problem. Um, we are here, as always, to bring you the, uh, the latest and greatest in food, wine, spirits, and all kinds of other things. Um, Share with you, the listener, the, the light and joy that is our lives. <laughs> uh, we are joined. We are. Yes, we are joined today with by Mark Irving. He is a sommelier, double set, a W set level three. What am I yeah, missing, why don't Mark? You just let him see it. Like what? <laughs> uh, it's Wine and Spirits Educational Trust. Okay. Uh, it's um, it's one of the two major sommelier guilds. It's based out of London, England. Okay. And uh, gives uh, sommelier accreditation um, uh, through different classes throughout the world. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's fair to say you you know your way around the uh, Bevmo. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. Hey, John, just checking in. Um, yes. This is uh, this is audio only, right? Uh, this is not audio video because only. I'm not wearing my pants. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. It's it's audio only. Okay. Um, good. No okay, good. Party. Yeah. Okay. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like I like to have the Skype because you know it's a, it's always more engaging to see somebody's face. You know. No, I agree totally. Um, but and so, <laughs> how is it for? For you in this quarantine, I mean, I know that we're all used to being out there with people and talking to people and stuff like that. Is that have you found it to be something that you really miss these days? Is it is it a nice break? I mean, I know it's been like, what, 40 days or something like that now. So, I mean, any any feeling of like having a break? I don't know. For me, seems like it's been enough. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, personally, I would say um uh, it's been it's been enough. I I'd say uh, I I do miss I do miss seeing people, especially people I like. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, we all live working in restaurants know about people we don't like too. Um, and how long like how long have you been into wine? Is it something you you learned early on, or what turned you on to wine as opposed to anything else? You know, um, actually, I started drinking wine at a very young age. Um. Uh, you know, my parents are both uh, European, and we started drinking at the table when I was perhaps 14 years old. There was no no problem to have a, a little bit of wine. Definitely, uh, by the time I was in my early 20s, I was very much into into wine, and um, I decided this wouldn't be a bad idea to have as a career. Yeah, and that's that's when you started actually studying it and taking it seriously, as opposed to just I mean, because. I know when Walter and I would drink wine in the very early days, before we knew anything about it, it was honestly whatever large jug of cheap wine we could get our hands on. Or, you know, I I have I have memories of of like getting barefoot Riesling and putting it in the freezer just so I could like get it down and stuff like that. So (laughs) I don't know if you I guess having. Having European parents and and having sips of wine at fourteen, it gives you a much different perspective than, say, somebody in the United States who's used to cheap wine. 
Oh, not to say that I had great wine all my life. Uh, I mean, I started off with really bad wine, too. I mean, uh, I was drinking stuff from the uh, Central European, Eastern European countries when I was 16 years old. I mean, it was not good. What is uh, that? Like, is that like? You know, a lot of stuff from uh, Bulgaria and uh, maybe some stuff from Romania, some stuff from Hungary. Mm -hmm. uh, it was cheap. I mean, you got you got to remember, I started drinking when I was in Canada, and Canada's uh, got huge uh, alcohol taxes, and mm -hmm. so anything good was very, very expensive and complete, completely out of reach for me, and right. probably completely out of reach for my for my family too. Can we? So I remember being in Canada, and I remember a couple of things about drinking in Canada. One was that it was extraordinarily expensive. So yes. even like there was no, you didn't catch a break on larger bottles. There wasn't anything like at the bar. And also I remember them pouring like a shot of whiskey and it was only one ounce and they wouldn't mm. go, they wouldn't consider pouring you a double at any point. It was just, you can have this one and you can finish this and then you can have another one. They're just like, it's just very strict liquor laws and, and, yes. and alcohol laws in Canada is that just, I mean, is it, it's always been that way? Yeah, I think things have loosened up a little bit um, as far as, you know, you can probably have more than one ounce at a time, but uh, not much, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. It's still very regulated. Um, uh, I think it's still very taxed. Um, but, you know, I would say that on the, on the whole, it's probably going, going for a good cause. I mean, they have what you call sin taxes in Canada. So, you know, cigarettes and alcohol are heavily taxed, but, uh, you know, I think they help pay for the medical coverage that everyone had. Mm -hmm. That's a whole nother conversation these days, mm -hmm. huh? <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, I think that Americans are starting to realize that maybe having medical coverage attached to your work is not the greatest idea. Yeah. Probably not. Yeah, because uh, when you lose both at the same time, it's not always a, a fun place to be. Um, and you also, so growing up, you become, you get interested in wine. Is becoming a sommelier, I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of studying, right? I mean, there's a lot of book work. Is there not? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, wine drinking, too. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there's actually more wine drinking than there is book, uh, book okay. study, I think. Yeah. Fair enough. I think you can, but that being said, I think you can learn a lot from drinking wine. I mean, um, if you try wines over the years and try hundreds and hundreds or thousands of different wines, you learn. You learn something from the process. Obviously, the book, book reading is very important. Talking to people in, in other areas of the business is very important. I would say that moving to Napa and Sonoma for me uh, six, seven years ago was a, was a great move as far as my wine career, because you can be places like um, you can be in places like you know Las Vegas or London where I've worked before, uh, and um, you won't be talking to winemakers and you won't be talking to growers. And those people offer a lot. They offer a wealth of information that was completely missing from my um, from my repertoire and from my um, knowledge base. Right. Yeah. What was it like? Um, well, I'm from Vegas. And so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm always curious how yeah. people who are not from Vegas perceived it being that you lived there. I mean, did you, was it, was it, was it a nonstop party for you? Did you find it beneficial in the experience? Was it a lot of money? You know, what was the draw to go to Vegas and work there as a sommelier? You know, John, my life has been a nonstop party. So Vegas <laughs> is just a continuation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, really, seriously. Um, Vegas was just like kind of the the, the mecca of of hospitality, and uh, right. you know, all the great chefs from you know from France and and the United States had an outpost there. 
uh, such a, uh, you know, if you're talking about wine and talking sommeliers, you know, most restaurants don't have a sommelier. To be a sommelier, you have to usually work, work in a restaurant that's, you know, a fine dining restaurant that sells a decent amount of wine. Otherwise, you can't afford one or you can't or you couldn't you wouldn't take one on. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't take sommelier on. And so uh, Vegas is kind of the mecca in that respect that like, yeah, you, you could um, you could work in the wine business and 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 uh, have a lot of opportunities. And also, um, I think a lot of opportunities to try a lot of great wine because someone that's great wine is, is, is drunk there. Mm-hmm. OK, yeah. I mean, I, I like I said, I moved I I left when I was 18 and I've only been back. I don't have any family left there and I have a few friends, but it's always just, I didn't realize how weird of a place it was until I moved away, you know, and you go there and you're just like, so everything's open 24 hours and it, you know, and the strip is just a very bizarre experience for anybody who's never been there. You know, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I actually worked on the strip, uh, but you know, what's funny is people that work on the strip never spend any time on the strip. So all my coworkers would would be off the strip immediately as soon as they finished work. Mm-hmm. Uh, they live in neighborhoods that are far away from the strip for the most part. Yeah. And occasionally when I had friends in town, they wanted to go walk on the strip. I would walk on the strip. I'd be like once every two years. And for me, it was even though I literally worked on the strip, walking on the strip was a very very strange experience. I I I just it still shocked me, you know, <laughs> in mm-hmm. some way. And I think that. In reality, people who live in Vegas don't experience the Vegas that people come to visit no. Vegas for. And so so living in Vegas and visiting Vegas are two entirely different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, working yeah. in hospitality in Las Vegas, I imagine you've, you have rubbed elbows or come across some some higher end clients. Do you have any stories or experiences you can share that you haven't had to sign any NDAs for? Well, you know, a lot of people often say, well, hey, you know, you, you must have seen a lot of stars or celebrities mm-hmm. in these in these in these restaurants. Uh, and the truth is, yeah, I've seen I've seen a lot. But, you know, the funny thing is, is that um, a lot of the stars and celebrities and movie stars, actors, as you know, singers, they're actually for for some reason not, in my opinion, for the really big diners or big drinkers. I mean, they're not they're not like the whaler, they're not the whale customer. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And I don't yeah. know if they're just trying to keep fit or or maybe because they don't. I don't know. I don't know the exact reason why, but they're not the ones that we were like, wow, you're gonna, you gotta, you're gonna, you're gonna see an actor, so you know they're gonna be in a bust out table. It, it, mm-hmm. it generally speaking, it isn't. They, yeah. I found that like, and I mean, I've never worked in Vegas. I'm, I'm never allowed to go back there again. But um, <laughs> the few like famous people, like you know, movie stars and stuff that have come into the hotel where we work, um, my experience was just like that. Like they just don't seem to know anything about stuff. Like the one guy, he's um. He was like the cop in uh, that uh, Vin Diesel movie. I can't remember what the hell. Vin uh, Diesel? Pitch Black or something. But mm. uh, anyway, he comes to the bar. And I was like, I recognize him. I was like, sir, how can I help you? And he's like with his little like entourage of people. And he kind of looks, as soon as he engages me, he looked a little bit frightened. And he was like, um, I don't know, just a, uh, I just need a glass of whiskey. And I was just like, really, dude? Like, you can't even name like Jack Daniels. Like, you can't, you know, you're not coming up with anything with whiskey. I'm like, certainly, sir. And I just grabbed him. It's like like scotch whiskey or like regular whiskey. He's like, yeah, yeah, scotch, scotch. Give me some scotch. I was like, a double or a single? And he's like, oh, a single would be fine, you know. 
And so yeah. I poured him a little Macallan 12 and just, you know, like he was just, he was so frightened. Like I just didn't want to hurt him. You know, like I felt so bad because I feel like, you know, <laughs> like your whales, like you're like the, you know, the guys who are coming in buying a $600 bottle of wine, they know about their wine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the actors might have a lot of money, but they don't have a lot of experience like spending it on, you know, really good things, you know? Um, yeah. Like he didn't order, you know, a really expensive glass of whiskey or scotch, you know, he didn't say like, oh, give me the McAllen 18 or, you know, give me the Buchlodic or, you know, like he didn't know anything about what he wanted. Yeah, oh. I, I I hesitate to mention names, but, you know, there's uh, and, and, and actually won't uh, because I just okay. think that that's, that's kind of part of the game is like, you know, I think everyone deserves their, their privacy, but. You know, yeah. I, you know, there's one guy who's, you know, uh, I think a cabby wardering um, actor that, you know, you see in London a couple of times. And he used to earn an order. He went to a steakhouse I worked at and then he would order a steak like burnt and you would have no wine, no beer, no nothing. Like water, water and a burnt beer, water and a burnt steak. And I'm like, man, it's just like, <laughs> what's the point of having money if you, if you can order water and a burnt steak? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And on the flip side, another another customer in London, this is actually one of the exceptions. Um, I won't, won't mention her name either, but um, she was very skinny and very, uh, I think she, you know, was she's been in some action movies and she, you know, um, she's very, she's in very good shape, but she was putting it down, uh, wine and food and just going, uh, you know, going for it. And the group that they were with, they, they spend a fortune, mm -hmm. uh, which is the exception, really. And it was kind of, I kind of remember it because it was the exception, but uh, I was impressed. I was actually impressed. She probably was no more than 110 pounds, but she could <laughs> definitely eat me under the table. And I don't know if she could drink me under the table, but she could definitely eat me under the table. Right. <laughs> That's not um, rude, actually, now I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, I understand what you mean. Um, Twice on Thursday. Um, what do you think of, like, like what is your, what's been your favorite uh, experience as far as you've, you've worked and lived in Vegas, you London, like, how was London? And then, you know, compare that to, say, California. It's... I imagine, you know, like you said, living in Napa and Napa and Sonoma, this is the place where you get to you get a whole new level of experience that you're not going to get from any book or from any wine tasting anywhere else in the world than actually being here where the people who are creating the stuff for the farmers who are have their hands in the dirt. But um, as far as like your favorite place to have been and worked, I mean, is it where would you say that is? Um, I would say that in many ways it was London. Yeah. And I think uh, from a wine perspective, London is a great place because England doesn't produce much wine. Some people believe they don't produce any wine at all, but they do produce a little bit, but they don't produce a lot. And so the customer that was in London uh, was very open to trying different wines from around the world. Uh, whereas I found other places, maybe even Napa and Sonoma, they're more a lot of people who are coming to Napa and Sonoma want Napa and Sonoma wines. I mean, that's the reason why they're here. Mm -hmm. um, paradoxically, though, the people that are in the wine business in Napa and Sonoma, they don't want to drink anything from Napa and Sonoma, <laughs> uh, which is weird. Uh, but in London, I tried a lot of wines you would never try here. I mean, people don't order um, New Zealand wi wines from New Zealand for that much, that much. People don't order wines from South Africa that much or Australia or or even from Argentina, but in, in London, you know, everyone was trying everything, you know, it was really kind of, um, it was very eclectic and, um, that was great. And when I went to wine shows and, 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 uh, distributor presentations where they show their portfolio, you try, 
you know, you know, hundreds of wines from all over the world, which you don't necessarily try here so much. You try a lot more from uh, California and you try a lot more from France, but you don't try a lot of stuff from more of the uh, smaller, known, less lesser known areas of the world for wine. Mm. Um, and so what do you think about, so we live, we live in Sonoma and or Napa. We live in the, the heart of American, you know, wine country. And when you putting together a list, when you're putting wines on a list, what then is important as far as you say, people from Napa and Sonoma don't want to drink Napa and Sonoma wines. They're looking for something else. They're looking for something from, uh, you know, Italy or mm. France or Spain even. So how do you balance that? I mean, I was in a place that was, it almost seemed predominantly European. And I think part of that had to do with the company that owned the restaurant and they were worldwide wine producers. So of course they're going to be, they're going to favor their portfolio more, but how do you balance that wine list? How do you, how do you make, I mean, how do you please everyone or do you not? Well, it's hard to please everybody. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> that's a very interesting question, John. Um, and, uh, you know, Unfortunately, there's a lot of sommeliers who make lists like as if they were making a list just for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, they're not the customer. They are serving the customer. And so for me, I kind of try and take myself out of the equation a little bit. You know, yeah, I like I want to I want to have wines that I like, but I also want to have wines that other people are going to like. And very more important, actually, more important than me is that, that the, the, the guests will like. And mm -hmm. some and it really depends on the venue. I mean, I worked at a venue in, in Napa and I worked at a venue in Sonoma. And the venue in Napa was very uh, geared towards the locals. And so um, we did have, of course, a lot of Na things from Napa, but we had some things that I knew that the um, the wine making crowd or the wine growing crowd or the wine winery owner crowd or the crowd that was maybe a little bit, um, you know, tired of Napa wines. I had some things for them, whereas, you know, the, the venue I worked at in, in Sonoma, well, you know, it was definitely geared to more towards um, uh, um, people coming from across the United States and even around the world. And so I want to try and make it a little bit more eclectic and make it, make, make it available, you know, something available that they would like. But at the same time, I think you do have to push the boundaries a little bit. I mean, I'm not going to say like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to put like, uh, you know, 25 rosés on uh, or 50 Rieslings that, you know, the general public's not going to buy just because maybe I like it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you might want to, you, you definitely as a sommelier, you want to, you want to, you know, try and turn people on to things that I think that that um, that are fantastic that they might not try where they are, either, mm -hmm. either because it's not available or never or never occurred to them to try it. But, you know, you can't force it down the throat. That's for sure. Right. And I think um, one thing that I that I've learned is that and I know that Walter, who neither of us have the obviously the experience in the in the training that you do, but just as being a somebody in hospitality and somebody who's, you know, at a certain level, you're trying to facilitate a good time. Uh, there's two types of things. Sometimes people don't want to be educated. And so mm. it's none of my business, right? I mean, Walter, would you agree that sometimes, yeah, you know, like, even shut up and give me a glass of wine, you know, even yeah. if the customer's wrong and it's, you know, like, yeah, give me, I'm not interested in, in any of this. I just want to have, a, I want to have fun. Yeah. And it's like, but, and then sometimes, give cause you know, I, cab. yeah. And so, but do, don't, do you find it difficult having the skill, having the knowledge and wanting to sort of train people? Is that part of your job to train people how to drink or is it just to facilitate the good time that they want to have? You know what I mean? 
Mm, also, another really good question, John. But I think, like, a, again, I, I try and take myself out of the equation. I got to look at them and say, are these people that want to be educated? And if they do, I'll, I'll be happily, ha happily give, you know, talk to them a little bit more about the wine and maybe talk to them a little bit more wine about wine in general and then the wine that they're drinking and, and maybe, you know, have a little bit of an educational talk. But then there's obviously people who just don't want that at all. And I'm not there to force it on them. And um, I think that's it's, it's a case by case scenario, really. Mm -hmm. You just sort of. You just look. You, it's just like you. You read the table. You read the bar. Yeah. You know. You, you you make a decision. What is this person? I mean, it's funny. We make snap decisions very quickly, and sometimes they're wrong. But um, we just have to go with our gut a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, I've there's been plenty of times, and again, I'm sure Walter would agree. You're like, you know, I'm thinking to myself, sir, you're absolutely wrong, and I'm happy to get you another one. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It. Remember, John, the customer's always wrong. Okay. Yeah, the that's customer's right. always wrong. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, um, handsomely to be wrong, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Being wrong is expensive. Yeah. No, and, <laughs> like it doesn't. It doesn't matter. It really. You're right. It really doesn't matter, and it's really unimportant, and it's not about me. Um, right. Well, there's a, there's a bit. I think there's a bit of a misconception also as to what a sommelier is and what the sommelier, a sommelier does and why a sommelier is even there. So from a restaurant, from a restaurant's point of view, or from, let's say, actually, let's, take, let's go back a bit. From a consumer's point of view, when they go into a restaurant, sometimes they think that a sommelier is this person there to educate them. That is their job, their main job as an educator. But I can guarantee you that most restaurants didn't hire me as an educator. Yeah, they want me to have the knowledge. But the real reason to have a sommelier is so you can sell more wine than, than uh, a server can. Right. Because otherwise you just have servers. Um, mm -hmm. The sommelier costs money. And so you need to make that money back. Uh, you need to you don't have to you need to feel that that, that person can sell more than a, than a server can. You know, that's let's say we have to shove things down people's throats. But there's a lot of people who are very, very happily. And, and, and I think you guys would, would, you know, would realize this very much that, you know, given a taste of something that was in a in a or given the given a, a taste of something that's in a higher cost bracket uh they might actually you know go from drinking a 20 dollar glass of wine to a 40 dollar glass of wine because they tasted it or because mm -hmm. you were so you know ecstatic about this wine and you just loved it and it showed that you really love this wine that that enthusiasm actually sold the the wine and for me i mean obviously if i'm selling bottles of wine i can't i can't give them a taste of it necessarily before they buy it um, but, you know, my enthusiasm is always what sold wine. When I go to a table and I talk to a person about wine, I get a rough idea as to what they want. And then maybe I'll sort of narrow it down to three wines. And I can mm -hmm. guarantee you, like 95% of the time, the people would buy the wine that I was most enthusiastic about, you know. Because they want to be enthusiastic, too. They want to feel that excitement. So they're thinking, oh, well, I've got this one. I've got mm -hmm. this one that I love. And then I have this other one. And so they're, mm -hmm. like, always going to go for the one that you love. Um, I've always, so when I first started working in wine country and when I first started, somebody gave me some advice cause I didn't really know a lot. I didn't know anything about wine. I remember picking up a burgundy and a Bordeaux glass and going, which is which? And, you know, ultimately it was like, oh, okay. So burgundy is the fishbowl. And that's just how I, that's how I remembered it. But somebody said, there's, there's only three things you need to know about wine. Do you like it? Um, are you willing to pay for it? And would you drink it again? And mm -hmm. although I know that there's much more to it than that, that's always been something that's helpful when I 
didn't know what I was looking for when somebody's very when they're when they're they're not educated and and that's not on them but just kind of like giving people something that they like rather than making sure that they know that it's from the south facing slope of the Loire Valley and you know what I mean yes well you know if if I was to say that there was any mission for me as a sommelier um I would say that the most important thing for me is to take out the stuffiness and take out uh, all the rigidity and all the, the the rules of wine and kind of, you know, put those in the background. Maybe, maybe they have a place somewhere. But the most important thing is to just, to, you know, to have fun. Wine and wine, drinking wine is fun. It's a communal activity mm-hmm. that we all do together. And uh, that's what I like about the job is that, you know, you're always talking to people who are enjoying wine and, you know, they're, they're, most people are, having, are drinking wine or having a good time. Uh, yeah. And I, I want to continue that. You know, I want to make sure they're having a good time. So all the stuffiness and all the, you know, the BS that goes along with the wine business, and there certainly isn't a lot of it, you know, there's far too many rules and far too much, you know, thinking about wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, these rules, these rules get broken often when people, they don't suit people. I mean, because France has completely different rules than the United States, correct? Uh, rules in what respect? Well, I, I guess one of the things like with the grapes. So you're not allowed to necessarily irrigate with with in France, whereas you can in the United States. You kind of have to let nature take its course, whereas mm. here you can kind of cultivate and you can curate the vineyards a little bit more to your liking. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I would say that even more more importantly is, yeah, um, I, I, I guess from a growing perspective, the big difference between Europe and, and North America in general is, you know, it's very defined in, in Italy and, and, and France, what kind of grapes you can grow in, uh, in particular areas. So that you can't grow um, Chardonnay in Bordeaux. Uh, mm-hmm. You cannot grow, um, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon in Burgundy. And so those are rules that, you know, are there. They're actually struck, you know, rules <laughs> are set out, set out by the government. Whereas in, in the United States, you know, you can try whatever you want. If you want to grow, 15 different varietals in a, in a, in a, in a vineyard, go for it. There's no one's going to tell you, you can't do it. It might not work out very well because some varietals just don't do very well in certain areas. And there's certain, and that's a reason why they're, you know, you don't grow Cabernet Sauvignon and Burgundy, but you know, there is no strict, there's no strict rule. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think that France put, has put those rules in place, not only to protect some people's interests, but also because they probably just make sense as to where Chardonnay grows best. It wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't have said, oh, this is where we're going to grow the Chardonnay if it hadn't already been growing there and growing there well. And then they like mm-hmm. delineate the different, um, I want to say the AVAs, what do they call them yeah, there? Well, that, the a- AOC not, there, it's, it's AOC, yeah. I mean, for the quality of the wine as well, I mean, maybe they're looking out for like, if, if you've got this whole region growing Chardonnay and somebody like brings in, you know, like a Riesling grape or something, and doesn't like because they do a lot of blending, you know, like it's not just one estate, like they're not just all estate wines, like, you know, they're buying other winemakers are buying wine from all these different vineyards. And so, like, what if you get like this batch of grapes or you're told they're Chardonnay, but they're not. Mm. Right. Like, that's not yeah. going to happen in France. No, they're, they're, they're trying to protect their they're trying to protect the the credibility and the quality of that particular region. So once mm-hmm. people start messing around too much and making bad wine in Burgundy or bad wine in Bordeaux, then the names of Burgundy and Bordeaux are destroyed. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, you can look at I that, that in that way. Yeah. 
So, well, we've all seen the movie Bottle Shock. So I, I want to say, who has the best wine? Is it France or is it is it California? Mark, who has the best wine? Like uh, Sonoma, John, obviously. Uh, you have to be standing over me with a with a gun to my head for me to answer that question, really. <laughs> I'm is ready it, to pull it, the trigger. Is it is it is it impossible to answer that question, or is it just that we can't? We certainly career can't. Suicide? We can't make any. Is career suicide right? Um, oh, you're the guy who said well, this. Uh, <laughs> No, um, you know, uh, well, you, you can, there's some people you can never convince that, that Fran, France makes great wine. I mean, and there's some people mm. who, who, who also believe that, hey, I, uh, you know, I wouldn't drink anything but French wine. So, or, or, or you know, I love, I love uh, um, you know, Russian River Pinot Noir or Napa Cab. And there's no, there's no way you can convince me that this is not the best, best wine. So is it is very subject, subjective to say, you know, who makes the best wines. We were at dinner at uh, Sante that one time and that girl, we were at that huge group. And I think it was Stephanie brought that friend of hers. Yeah. Who's like, I'm not drinking anything but, but Napa Chardonnay. Like, I won't do it. <laughs> so she yeah. had like this meltdown about like Napa Chardonnay. It's like, all right, sister, like, you're not even paying for any of this, but sure, go ahead and be crazy, I guess. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I never, I never fully understood the, I, I the rigidity, because, and especially when I, when I was working in, when I was living in Napa and working in Sonoma and going back and forth, and there would always be this sort of, I want to say, somewhat friendly competition between the two. You know, when you drive into Sonoma Valley from San Francisco, there's a sign that says real wine country, which I think is a little bit of a, you know, jab in the back of Napa. You know, I don't know what the sign says in Napa, but it does. It says, welcome to the real wine country. Yes. And I've always found it to be a little bit silly because I found there was really great wines in both areas. And Napa cabs are Napa cabs for a reason. And you're not going to find the same or you're you're not going to find as much the same level of Cabernet in Sonoma. There are some that are fantastic and I've had, and this is just my opinion, right? I'm one person. So it varies, but it, I don't know why there needs to be such a, um, why there should be any competition. Because, competitive, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's good, you know, root for your team, you know? Right. Okay. Doesn't mean I, like, I won't go to a, you know, a, a different team sporting event, you know, in another town with another friend, you know? I went to a Red Sox game with Schwabi, you know, but I don't. Mm -hmm. You don't, you don't root for the Red Sox. I mean, I'm not supposed to because I'm not from there, right? But <laughs> you can root for whoever you want. I know, but that's what I'm saying. It's just a healthy competition. It makes things more mm. fun, you know. If you if you have a team you prefer to win the Super Bowl, it makes watching mm -hmm. the Super Bowl more fun. Yes. So having yes. Sonoma versus Napa, you know, on the wine circuit, you know, just kind of makes it more fun when you go out. It's like, oh, you know. I've had mm -hmm. better, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so speaking of the areas and like places to go and things like that, um, I don't. I always wanted to ask about. I've never been, and I don't know if Walter, if you've ever been to the French Laundry, or Mark, if you've been to the French Laundry, have you not? I've been inside uh, the know, building. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, Walter and I were in, in the building at the same time. We we both went in there for a little bit of a tour, but we. I've never. I've never eaten there. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what would you say is like your like your favorite 
restaurant in the area in Napa and or Sonoma or each or both or whatever? I mean, is there some place where you're like, wow, this place is really special and I really enjoy this? Aside from the one that you, you know, you work at, we take that one out of the equation so we don't get anybody in trouble. But, um, you know, one of the one of the places I go to uh, quite often is um, is Bistro Don Giovanni. And, and I think I don't know necessarily if all the food is is great there um mm-hmm. but there's some things that they do very very well and i just think the ambiance is really nice you know sitting outside and just enjoying the uh the little garden they have there but one thing they do exceptionally well is their octopus salad and i'll i will keep on going back for the octopus salad you know not, not a lot of people do octopus mm-hmm. and uh and it's really hard to do well uh to keep it tender and, and delicious and uh that's something i will i will continuously go back for um i am a little bit worried though you know when i think you know, think about this whole situation we're in right now, you know, what restaurants will actually be there? I mean, will, will that restaurant be there? Will my other favorite restaurants um, be there? I mean, I uh, don't know. Chantilly is another one I really enjoy and just enjoy the environment. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the, enjoy the, the food there. I mean, yeah, I'm hoping that um, most of these restaurants will survive and I'm just not sure that they will. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, um? what would you pair with an octopus salad? I mean, I, I like, uh, I think you could have like a Sauvignon Blanc or you could have a champagne. I think uh, mm. I've, I've had it. I've had it many times with, with you know, a sparkling wine or champagne. And um, I've always enjoyed that. You know, you need a little bit of acidity. Um, uh, but, yeah, I think those are those are those are two two things you couldn't you couldn't go wrong with. OK. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about price, about cost. And mm. um, I know that the place that we all worked at together, um, there is. I had never had the opportunity to sell wines at such a high end. And um, I remember the first time and the second and third time that I sold the Screaming Eagle. Yeah. And it was this, <clears throat> it blew my mind that somebody would pay $900 a glass for wine. But mm-hmm. there we were pouring it on a somewhat regular basis. I mean, we had one of those, we would go through one bottle every six or six, seven months. It seemed, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe more. I don't know, Walter. You pour you poured a lot more than I did. I feel like. Um, I don't know. I don't know about that. We'd have to look up those numbers. But um, <laughs> but it was it was definitely. I mean, I I always kind of that was always kind of like an overshoot. I used that that price point to make the rest of the wine make sense to people. <laughs> when they look mm-hmm. at the li- a list like that that market put together, this amazing list of like these wines that you can't find anywhere in the world, and I'd explain like. Yes, like 70% of what's being produced in this area is being consumed in this area. Like, you're not going to find this glass of wine. Yes, it's $80 a glass. Yes, it's worth $80. It probably is worth more than that. And you're never going to find it anywhere, you know? And so you, you know, you blow their doors off and they end up with a futo and you're just like, and they're just, they love it, you know? And the wine is so amazing. But yeah, the, I mean, yeah, you just hmm. say, yeah, this is $1,000 a glass. And, you know, they've got this other glass for eight for the half glass, you know? And, the, and every price point in between. So let's just talk about what you want. Like, how much fun do you want to have? Mm. What, what, but like, what makes a wine worth or what makes, what makes us able to sell it for that much? Make like, what makes Screaming Eagle, when people say, hey, why is Screaming Eagle so much? I mean, what do you, what do you tell them? How do you explain to them the exclusivity of the grapes and, well, with Screaming Eagle in particular, I think that, you know, it's a, it's a thing of supply and demand. The demand is much higher than the supply. I mean, they make 800 mm-hmm. cases. 
Um, and they don't make more than 800 cases for the most part, uh, you know, maybe slightly more or slightly less depending on the year. And, um, you know, they've, they've got a mailing list that's, that's huge. So there's a demand for it. And so, uh, you know, people can be on the waiting list for the waiting list for the mailing list for eight years before you get the wine. So there is there's demand and, and, the, and the, the demand really came from its early days when it would, you know, score, you know, you know, 100 points, 99 points consecutively year after year. And, um, you know, it was the most ever paid, I think, at, for a case of wine at one point, maybe still is uh, at auction. And so that just creates a desire. You know, people want to have this thing that that very few people can have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, we, back to a, an earlier question is, you know, what ma- you know, who makes the best wine? There are certain things that do make for expensive wine. I mean, the techniques you can have techniques that you can get by and make bottles of wine for five dollars. And then there's techniques that you can use to make wine that you can no way in the world make wine for five dollars bottle. And it has a lot to do with the inputs. You know, if you're, you know, first of all, if you're using new French oak at, you know, seventeen hundred dollars or two thousand dollars a barrel and using those every year, you know, if you're if you're cutting off 50 percent of your grapes and your vine as opposed to none or very little and letting them drop and rot in the ground and you're only using the best the best grapes. But those sort of things cost money. Also, of course, land costs, you know, land costs in Napa are very high. So there are certain things that say, you know, yes, you know, you can say that certain regions in the world and certain um, winery producers are spending a lot of money to make their wine. And so they do make great quality wine. Now, that being said, you know, demand and perceptions of value can change. And Mm -hmm. now, now with this huge situation we're in, I kind of wonder about the future of really, really expensive wine. I mean, if no one's got a job, I mean, it doesn't matter if you want to price your wine for, you know, $800 a bottle. If there's no buyers, there's no buyers. Yeah. I mean, do you think, do you think that the price is going to come down on a lot of these things? Do you think that we're going to see some dramatic deep discounts when things finally open up again? I do. Yeah, I absolutely do. Yeah. I remember during the, the, the recession of, you know, the Great Recession 2008, 2009, before that, people were buying bottles in Vegas for $300. And, and I'd ask people, you know, and I'd see myself, you know, are we selling those $300 bottles after 2008? Well, a lot of people would sort of down, downsize to $100 bottles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that took a while for it to really come back. Um you know, we just came out of a peak period where, you know, people were willing to spend $900 on a glass of wine. And there's a lot of people that probably could afford to spend $900 on a, on a glass of wine. I don't know. I don't know if, um, actually, now that I think of it, I don't, I don't think the people that can afford $900 glasses of wine ever die off. They kind of, they kind of continue <laughs> to exist and nothing, and nothing really, nothing really affects them. Right. But, yeah. that, but you know, the $200 balls of wine, um, you know, the that, that, that's, bigger. that's the price point where people are going to say, you know what, um, it doesn't have the exclusivity, um, and, uh, it's not the most expensive wine or the most softer wine. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to spend $200 on a bottle of wine anymore. I want to buy my retail bottle for, you know, $50. And so mm-hmm. there'll be a lot more of that. I think the middle class is going to be hit, uh, you know, the, the, um, you know, People who make less money are definitely going to be hit. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people who think they have a job to go back to right now, uh, and they're just waiting out this whole situation at home, you know, for things to get better. M- maybe they might be suddenly shocked to find that they don't have a job to go back to. Probably mm-hmm. a lot of people. Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately. And they don't um, realize so, it. Yeah. <clears throat> so how do you go about, like, say, getting a 
bottle value. I want to talk about value. So if you're going, say you got to go to a dinner party and you didn't grab something from your seller and the only thing open is Safeway. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to live in an area where even Safeway has a pretty spectacular selection, right? Mm. What do you, what do you look for when you're looking for value in the wine? Is it, you know, you go, okay, well, I only want to spend, I need two bottles, but I only want to spend $30 or whatever it is. How do you go about finding a good value for the wine? Well, sometimes it's tricky, you know. Um, I uh, I think that uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of what goes into um, making a wine expensive sometimes is branding and marketing. Mm. And so sometimes a wine that's been overly branded and overly marketed, um, it definitely would not be my top choice because you're paying a lot for that branding and for that marketing. Um, and so. You know, we could all think of some really well-known brand names of wine that may or may not be worth it. Right. Uh, right. I think that there's some certain regions around the world and regions even in the United States that are uh, that are uh, do have value. I mean, uh, Napa is very very expensive. Some Napa wines are extremely good and 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 you know in many cases worth the money. Some Napa wines um, I would have to say maybe aren't worth the money. I mean, I would. Say okay, well, I'd rather have a wine from this region because I think that I'm going to get better value on my thirty dollar purchase or forty dollar mm-hmm. purchase. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and then so when we're looking at like cheap wines, and mm. I remember one time buying a bottle of wine and bringing it over to a friend's house, and she was very much a wine geek snob whatever i mean she knew her stuff and she was very much into wine and i i grabbed some like six dollar bottle i think it had a rooster on it and it was on the bottom shelf and she was just like this is undrinkable and we tried it and it was pretty awful so Mm -hmm. i mean i i always think that the best thing is to kind of maybe find something Mm -hmm. mid-range maybe don't buy the cheapest bottle of wine on the shelf Mm -hmm. necessarily Mm -hmm. it's probably five dollars for a reason you know well, you know, you know, we talked about I talked about the I talked about the in, inputs of wine, and so you know, because of the the price of la, land in Napa, it's very good. It's very hard to get a um, a really good bottle of thirty dollar retail Napa wine, uh, Cabernet. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. Whereas you know, you go to Argentina, uh, where the inputs are, very, are much less. The labor inputs, the land inputs, uh, th- those things are are a lot are a lot cheaper. Um, and, um, and so if you spend $30 on a bottle of Argentinian wine, as opposed to say $30 on a bottle of Napa cab, you're probably going to get a much more, much more value in that $30 Mm. Argentinian wine, because yeah, $30 for an Argentinian wine is kind of expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. obviously there's Argentinian wines that are more expensive, but there's a lot of Argentinian wines out there, especially in Argentina that are, you know, four or five, $6. And then, so what about, what do you like to drink? Um, what would be the thing that if somebody saw you drinking, they'd be like, really, Mark? I thought oh, you were a small. Don't, don't, don't go there. <laughs> no, we can't <laughs> talk about it. Oh. Is there, is there like a, is there a bottle of fireball in the freezer or something? Or is it, no? <laughs> I mean, I'm just, well, I'm just saying is that we all have different tastes, but like, what would yeah, be the yeah, one thing course. that would be typical of well, like somebody, well, Mark? People would be buddy. Okay. Well, people, People love to make fun of me because, um, you know, people that I, know, that, that I go uh, out, out uh, to drink with after work and they'd be like, what the hell is going on? Here's our sommelier who, you know, selects all this very, very expensive wine. 
why is he drinking a, a Pabst Blue Ribbon? And I'm like, well, for me, it's water. It's a mm-hmm. uh, refreshing drink. It's, um, it's uh, not too heavy <laughs> and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. quenches the thirst after, after, you know, tough day of work. So that's yeah. probably one of my guilt, guilty pleasures is I do like a, I do like a PBR and, <laughs> sure. and um, yeah, uh, as far as wine, um, you know, I've been, you know, everyone's on a little bit of a budget right now. And so I'm trying to get value in wine too. And one of my value wines that I've been going to, going to get, and I think it's quite nice. It's, it's not the best wine I've ever had, but you know, the Kirkland Prosecco is $6.99. Oh, and it's actually one of the one of the I've had Prosecco that's at least two or three times that price that mm-hmm. hasn't been as good. I think it's actually a pretty good value wine. So six ninety nine Kirkland Prosecco, um, get it now. <laughs> that's <laughs> great. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Kirkland Kirkland makes good jeans. They make good yeah. Prosecco. I think you could get vodka from them. Like there's oh, yeah. mixed yeah. nuts, the whole party. Um, yes. And then I so then my. I guess my last question, unless there's there's other things, but um, is on the opposite end of that, when we when all of this is done and over with, and you're invited to your first dinner party, may I don't know, maybe Walter's gonna make his uh, Jacques. What is it, Walter? Coquille Saint Jacques. Like, what is the what is the bottle of wine from your cellar that you're gonna say this is a really special occasion? I'm going to pull this out and I want to share this with some friends I haven't seen in fucking four or five months. Like, what is end the thing you end of quarantine? What is the end of quarantine seller selection for, <laughs> for you? Oh boy. That's a tough one. List for that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, there's a wine that's, uh, I, I've, I've always been very fond of. Uh, and I think, uh, I think um, Walter knows it, you know, Walter's been there with me and, I think that uh, it's a wine that I've had on my list in Sonoma. It's a Sonoma wine that I think that they've done such a great job uh, and it's Verite. And and not all Verites are as exceptional, but for me, the Verite 2009, the Desire, is probably one of the finest bottles of wine I've ever tasted from Sonoma. And one of the finest bottles I've ever had, period. So uh, and I think the reason I like it so much is I'm a big Bordeaux fan and it has a Bordeaux element to it. And it also has a little California element to it. And um, it's kind of the, the great marriage of both worlds. Um, the, the winemaker Pierre Salin is from France and he's living in California. And so that kind of, it's kind of understandable. Okay. I see how you brought it all back around. The French winemaker in California, everybody working together. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think, honestly, I just want to thank you for coming on the show and talking about wine and you know it's uh it's an interesting thing already it it might be time (laughs) i mean i Uh, i i have to go soon but um i know we're all living our very busy lives and i yeah i mean so i just hope that everybody's staying happy and healthy and all that good stuff and um yeah thank you mark i appreciate it i missed the shit out of you my pleasure (laughs) yeah I i miss you guys too it's uh it's great to see to see human faces. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't seen anyone I've known for a long time, and usually it's me scur- scurrying around a supermarket very quickly to get what I need and get the hell out of there without That's... looking anyone in the eye. You know, <laughs> right? It's and, true. And, I mean, there's a lot of yeah. weird panic buying, and you know, like oh, yeah. ah, so uh, I'm gonna run into somebody in the aisle. You know, hopefully um, this yeah will be lifted soon, and and you know there will be 
quarantinis all around. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a strange new world we live in, and um, uh, I like strange, but not this strange. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Right on. Well, thank well, you, Mark. It's John. Great to see you all. It's John. Thank you for listening to Gluten Is Not Your Problem. Send your ideas, comments, and questions to glutenisnotyourproblem at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Oh, John and-